Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Emily Costello, Managing Editor of The Conversation U.S. Welcome to the show, Emily. Thank you. I am so glad you're here and we get to learn more about The Conversation. Before we jump into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. Um, Let's see. I have been working at The Conversation for almost eight years now. It's the longest I've ever been in one um, professional uh, position, Um, although I've moved around a lot in the company um, during that period of time. Um, Before that, I worked in local news, um, mostly in newspapers in Massachusetts. And then going further back, I've done pretty much every kind of media there is. I've worked in um, children's magazines, um, children's mass market publishing, um, radio, television. (laughs) Um, So I've really kind of um, had an interesting um, career um, movie, radio, (laughs) moving through a lot of different media. That is an interesting career. Did you know that's what you wanted to do when you headed off to college? Oh, no, that's really interesting. So um, my own children are in college now. I have a son and a daughter who are both in college. And um, my daughter just asked me the other day, um, Mom, when you were my age, did you know what you wanted to do? <laughs> and I, I, I told her um, when I was her age, she's 19 now, what I wanted to do would be um, be an international businesswoman who spoke fluent Mandarin and traveled the world. <laughs> and I, uh, I had a rude awakening when I realized that language was not really my strong suit and that Mandarin was maybe a stretch for me. Um, so um, I, I, I got into my career um fairly organically when I graduated from college. Um, you know, I took a job. I was living, I, I, I attended college at Barnard College in New York City. Um, I was offered a job um, in children's publishing, and it sounded fun and interesting. It was an opportunity to stay in New York. And from there was pretty much one thing leading to the next. Um, so... Yeah, more of a voyage of discovery than a plan. But it sounds like you have a real feel for communication and how the written word lands with an audience. I'd like to think so, yes. (laughs) It's sometimes easy for outsiders to say, well, someone's got a special talent in that or they're just good at it. Writing is work. Communicating well is work. How did you develop the skills to be an editor and to help other people express their opinions and their knowledge in the written form? Um, I think I think what's important for writing is to enjoy it. Um, I, I, it is something that I really. It, it is a way I really enjoy spending my time. Um, and um, I think that that's 
pretty much the only crucial thing <laughs> for success. Um, I, although, uh, although, uh, I mean, I guess you can succeed even if you're a bit miserable doing it. Um, I think that the, the, the real key to good writing is revising. Um, at one stage in my uh, life, I, worked as an adjunct professor at a community college here in Boston. And I really like, that was a really wonderful experience as far as um, having the time to think about how to teach writing and how to express to people why it was important um, for everyone to, to, to do this work. Um, And over time, as I developed that course, I, I really, um, came to put a great emphasis on revision um, because I, I feel like um, in professional writing that really that is really where the difference is made. And so I tried to teach the students and work into the um, structure of my class the um, opportunity for them to revise papers over time with my feedback until you know hone them until they got as good as they could be. Um, so I, I, I mean, I'm not quite sure where the notion came from, but I do recall as like, um, even in elementary school being praised for my writing. And, um, so I think probably it had to do with, um, external (laughs) validation of people telling me that that was something that I was good at. Um, and then in those early jobs that I had in, um, it was fiction publishing, they just you know, they just kind of threw me into the deep end. And, um, you know, I probably just learned from making a lot of mistakes. (laughs) Um, That's a good thing about writing. Like if you make a mistake, um, it's not usually not fatal, you can always put things back. um, If the changes you've made are not working, or if the collaborators that you're working with disagree with them. It's more of an art than a science. So, um, you know, there's there's always a lot of different ways to make a um, piece of writing work. Um, so, yeah, there's not a lot of downside to just trying um, to fix things up and and um, and pedaling back if um, if you need to. There's sometimes common themes that I find throughout like the different podcasts that I've taped with guests. And one is the profound effect encouragement has on people and the profound effect discouragement has on people. And what I'm hearing from you is you got validation when you were young that writing was for you. You were good at it. You could do it. And when they were throwing you in the deep end of these projects, then there's an implied confidence. Go try this, Emily. We think you can do it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right about that. Um, how did you come to work for the conversation? Oh, <laughs> um, it was a bit of a funny story. So um, I um, I was working at the time um, at a daily newspaper in um, on the North Shore of Massachusetts, and we had just posted a um, job listing on a job site that's called journalismjobs.com, which is where a lot of people in the field, um, at least at that time, I think still, um, go to look for jobs. And um, I was just going to the site to see if our job listing had, you know, um, just to um, proofread it. 
And below it was this job at the conversation. <laughs> um, and I read the listing and I thought to myself, oh, you know, wouldn't I love that job, but, you know, I'll never get it. But I decided to apply and I did get it. Um, so it was it was um, a, a lucky break, I guess, for me. Um, but at that point, um, I was um, uh, familiar with the organization because the paper that I worked for um, was picking up some of the conversations content. All of the content that we produce is free for other media to pick up, and it does serve a role in um, some some organizations um, when they have a hole to fill in their <laughs> in their print edition. They can go looking for um, a story um, from us to fill it, and I had I had had that relationship with the organization already um, when I went into interview at that point. The conversation U.S. was only about six months old, um, so it was a pretty small team at the time, and I joined as the senior politics and society editor, um, and I was the only person covering politics in the U.S., and um, so it was it was very interesting um, time to join. Talk about being thrown in the deep end. Um, you know, it was my tasks to figure out how to cover the 2016 election under the conversations model. And um, that was a lot of fun. The conversation started abroad, is that right? Yes, that's right. It started in Australia and um, has since grown to, um, it depends on how you count, but eight or nine editions across um, the world. Um, the U.S. was the third edition to come on, and we were founded in um, 2015, in October of 2015. For listeners who haven't familiarized themselves yet with the conversation, I know I'm new to finding it. So, um, Welcome. <laughs> I, and I'm enjoying the articles that I'm reading, and I've um, interviewed uh, scholars who've written for you. So it's been fun to learn about the conversation. But if we were going to describe for listeners what the conversation is, would you describe it as a newspaper, as an online journal? How would you let people know really what it is and what the mission is? Yeah. Um, so I would describe, I, I describe, fundamentally, I think uh, the easiest way to understand us is, is a news organization. Um, we're a news organization um, with some particular characteristics that are important. We're, we're mission-driven um, and we're a nonprofit. Our mission is to democratize knowledge. So what that means is that we work to unlock the um, academic research to um, bring it to um, um, audiences across America. So the idea is um, essentially... Every one of our stories has the element of um, of an academic and a journalist working together to create content for a general audience. Um, and it takes many forms. Um, you know, if you think about the model as being that simple, we really try to innovate within that model and um, and think about 
you know, uh, how, how can we take these collaborations and do different interesting things with them? So we have some editors who um, work primarily with researchers on um, science as it, um, as it emerges, like very cutting edge, edge science, um, you know, taking journal articles that are quite dense and hard to understand and um, writing them in a way that a um, lay reader can understand the science and also understand the importance of the findings. Um, and then we have editors, you know, who, um, who uh, work, you know, with um, researchers who are studying political movements or are studying things in the humanities. Um, you know, it, it really goes across a broad um, sort of uh, range of topics and approaches. And how do these collaborations come about? There is a little portal on your website where it says um, something like, write for us. How does this come about? Yeah, um, well, two ways. So seeing how we're a news organization, every morning we have a news meeting where my editors meet and we talk about the news of the day. Actually, the whole staff meets um, and we pitch ideas to each other um, and talk about the things that we want to cover. Um, so we have about 20 editors and um, about 32 people on staff altogether. Um, and so at the end of that, <clears throat> at the end of that discussion, um, you know, the editors will go out and we, we call it chasing. They'll, they'll start um, trying to pursue the stories that we all agreed would be interesting to bring to the public. That's like a traditional way for news organizations to start their day, and we've adapted that practice. And then the other way is that um, is through that portal that you saw on our website. Um, academics from around the country send us their pitches as well, and we read them all, and um, and we commission some of those stories as well. And. This is a free publication that's available without a subscription. Um, yes. Do the scholars then also work pro bono for you? Yeah, they do. Um, so essentially no money changes hands <laughs> in any of our relationships. So um, the stories are free for the public to read and um, so they can either find them on our website or a really good way to um, to interact with our content is to um, to sign up for one of our newsletters. And then they're free for other media to pick up. So I alluded to that at the beginning that, um, you know, we really want to encourage other media and support and nurture other media by, um, by having them um, pick up our content and um, have it enhance their own publications. And um, the scholars write for us for free. They, um, we only work with scholars who are affiliated with universities. So in general, they think of it as part of their um, either professional development or their um, like community outreach or their publication work. So they, they tend to think of it as um, work that supports their, um, their job as academics. 
you mentioned you have these meetings in the morning and you all brainstorm what you want for new content. Yep. What is the timeline for that from when you have one of those pitch meetings in the morning to when that piece will end up uh, published by the conversation? Yeah. Um, so it really varies. Um, I have two editors who are um, working on what we call moving news, or you, or you might call it breaking news, and they really try to um, move stories during as 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 news is emerging, and um, and and often they can move a story in um, you know three hours, three to six hours. So during the same workday. Um, today, as we're recording, um, the top story sort of leading the news in the U.S. is the shutdown of air travel because of, um, of problems um, uh, with the um, FAA. So um, they're they're chasing that story now um, and may may move something on that today. But most of my um, most of my um, editors are working on stories that are more news analysis or explanatory pieces, which um, usually have a little bit longer gestation. I would say most of them, maybe two or three days. I I don't know if we'll have a moving news story today on. Um, on the disruption in air travel, but I'm pretty sure we'll have something that will move within a couple of days that will explain um, some more of the context, like what the funding to the FAA looks like, um, uh, how the how old the computer systems are, um, something that ex- you know. Once we know more about what's happening, something that explains more of the context and helps people understand how we ended up in this position today. Um, and then some pieces, some pieces are very long <clears throat> in coming. Um, you know, some of the, some of the work that we do are what would be considered features. Um, so they have, you know, they, they are less tied to the news, but they're just really interesting things that are happening or, um, you know, um, uh, broader pieces about um, trends and things like that. And those could take a couple of weeks um, or even a couple of months from um, the idea stage to publication. You mentioned that scholars can um, submit a pitch through the website and that a lot of the work that you do, you consider collaborations. How do the collaborations come about? So I really, I consider, um, I, every article is really a collaboration between an editor and the scholar that they're working with. Um, um, the two, you know, the two, it, sometimes it's more than two people, but scholars and editors bring different skills to the table. And um, we really try to create an atmosphere of respect between equal respect between the two groups and um, and work together to produce that piece. Um, so, yeah, so it's through the pitch process um, that the commissions come about and also us reaching out to people and um, and asking them to write for us. 
Um, at this point, I think we've worked with, over the period of time we've been um, operating in the U.S., we've worked with um, over two, uh, over 12,000 scholars, 12,402, I was told this morning, um, so far. So um, it's a big world out there. There are a lot of academics in, in the U.S., um, and um, it's really fun to get to know them and um, to learn about what they're studying. On the uh, materials that I've read about the conversation, it says the conversation, academic rigor, journalistic flair. Yeah. And I made a note next to that note that said a lot of scholars fear they lack flair. Um, So is that part of the collaboration and part of the editorial services that you provide to help uh, scholars develop that flair? Or do you tell us to go out and get that first? (laughs) (laughs) No. So, yeah, so it's academic rigor. So what what we're hoping the academic brings to the table is really a deep expertise about um, whatever topic it is that we've commissioned them to write about. and so, um, so they bring the rigor, and then hopefully <laughs> the journalists bring the flair. Which, by flair, that's an old that's an old slogan that we sometimes um, laugh about. But by flair, we mean um, understanding the media landscape and all of its complexity, or trying or trying to, um, you know, how to write a headline. Um, how to write a lead of an article that will bring readers in, how to take something that might come in in draft form is very dense and using a lot of terminology that people are maybe not familiar with and sort of um, simplifying it, trying not to lose any nuance. And, you know, we, we really, we're not trying to dumb down the content at all, but just express it in a way that is more accessible to a broader audience. Um, academics learn a certain language when they're taught to write journal articles, um, which has its use in, it has its use in, um, narrow fields. Um, you know, I don't, I don't look down on that language at all, but it's like learning another language almost to, um, think about how you want to convey that same information to a different audience. And that, that's our flair, I guess. I will say that, um, that, like I said, that's sort of like an old motto of ours that we've moved away from a little bit because it. <laughs> I think that it um, emphasizes emphasizes a, a dichotomy that's not really reflective of reality. A lot of academics are very talented writers and bring plenty of flair of their own to the table. <laughs> so, um, you know, um, I you know I don't know that that maybe I think is a little little bit off. Um, off the mark. I know a lot of scholars who feel like we spent much of grad school learning how to be awful writers, that we went in loving books and loving knowledge and being able to have clear communication with people around us. And we graduated just really unclear how to talk to real people anymore and how to make something um, make sense to a wide audience. And there's a lot of frustration in that, that we learned how to talk to a very insular group very well. And we know all these things we're so geeked out about. We're so passionate about it. And we 
are the person you probably want to move away from at any party or gathering because if you ask us, we will somehow accidentally make it sound as complicated or as boring <laughs> as possible. And we're all puzzled, like, but it's so interesting. Oh, you really have to leave? Okay. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I feel like what you're offering when you say journalistic flair is not a turnoff, but it's a return to what we wanted to do. We want to learn this stuff so we can make other people excited to learn it too. I don't know anybody who graduates and says, I hope no one will care at all about learning and knowledge and what we've done here. But we we leave often with this sort of um, communication gap. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think you put your finger on something that's really, um, really important. And um, even though, like, you know, I, our, our primary, like, our primary mission at the conversation is to get this information out to the public, you know, like, I, I try to keep that reader foremost in my mind, in my job. Um, there are a lot of knockoff benefits of the work that we do. And some of them, um, you know, that we developed that we didn't, um, you know, that we discovered as we as we started to do this work. Um, so one of the things is, you know, like I, 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 I said early on, I, I really think writing is a wonderful tool for for all sorts of people. And one of the reasons is, um there's something about the process of writing something and trying to articulate it very simply um, that clarifies your own thinking. Um, you know, writing is, is I think, in some ways, just another way of thinking. Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, I had scholars, I remember a scholar at the University of South Carolina who said to me, after I published my piece with you, my students were able to understand my work and connect with it in a way that they never had from my lectures. And they saw it republished in Slate, which they all read. And like my coolness quotia went way up with them. And I just felt so much more affirmed as a, you know, as a teacher, because I felt like I was making a connection with them that had been lacking before. Um, so that's, you know, I mean, that's a really wonderful outcome. Um, and then often, um, I think, I think the questions that we ask as editors and as really curious, um, supportive collaborators sometimes um, just push academics into new ways of thinking about um, inquiries they're making, their research focus. Um, and, and, and it does, I, I think a lot of people do, not everyone, I mean, like I said, a lot of academics already are quite um, skilled writers, but the ones who have been struggling to, to, um, to write in a way that's accessible, that they, that hopefully they learn a little bit about doing that on their own from working with us. Sometimes we um, we we come across somewhat obscure academics and we publish a bunch of pieces with them and they become they become famous academics who <laughs> are you know who uh, who publish op eds in major newspapers and appear on talk shows. So um, yeah, it's a little bit of a learning process of how to communicate. 
I was thinking as you were talking about op-eds, and I know there's one project, and off the top of my head, I'll, I'll misname it, but the purpose of it is to teach scholars how to write op-eds through workshops, but those are only available on a very few campuses. Does the conversation ever offer any workshops over Zoom, or do you want to take the suggestion now that we would like you to? <laughs> yeah, I think you're thinking of the op-ed project, which is a wonderful, um, a wonderful organization that um, we worked with a lot in in the beginning. They supported us um, a lot um, when we were getting started. Um, we do. So I will. I will just say, like the con- so. It's important to understand the editorial voice of the conversation. And we are trying to produce what we call explanatory journalism, or you could think of it as news analysis or explainers. Um, They're not traditional op-eds, although you sometimes find them on op-ed pages, but a traditional op-ed is much more about telling Um, people what to think or exhorting them to some sort of um, action. And um, we we really are looking for things that are more um, evidence-based arguments. Um, So more explanatory. Um, We'd like to make the argument and show all the citations and then sort of um, you know, sometimes we say let the reader make their draw their own conclusions from the um, the evidence we've provided to them. So our content is a little bit different than op-eds, and and sometimes um, often it's more comfortable for academics to write for us than to write for op-eds because they struggle to adopt that um, position of like telling people what should happen or what the government needs to do, um, you know, they're more comfortable like um, laying out evidence, um, which is what we allowed them to do. Um, we do offer workshops. Um, so um, part of our funding model is that we have member organizations who support our mission. And in exchange, they get um, they get things like workshops for their faculty. And we have about 72 um, U.S. universities who are members of the conversation. And so we, um, we do do a lot of workshops for f- folks like that. Um, and um, people who are academics could, you know, go on our website and look for their school name at the bottom of the website to see if their school is, um, is a member of the conversation or ask their communications staff um, if they're if if um, if they're a member, if they're interested in workshops, what's a typical day like for you as an editor? <laughs> I spend a lot of time at um, answering slacks from <laughs> the staff. <laughs> um, my so I'm in a so I'm you know I'm something like I'm in a supervisory role as managing editor. Um, I all of the all of our editors either report directly or indirectly to me. So um, my job is solving problems for them, answering questions for them, um, setting policies to help guide our work, training people, 
and um, sort of guiding our coverage, um, you know, deciding what we're going to cover and what we're not going to cover, um, planning series that are more long term, like um, it's the beginning of January now, we're talking about what we want to publish on the anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine at the end of February now, um, you know, so making those kind of long-term plans. Um, yeah, and I, I do a lot of strategic thinking with our CEO and um, think about how we want to grow. Um, I do a lot of work around partnerships. Um, we've had, um, you know, we do partnerships with other media organizations. So, um evaluating those opportunities and seeing what we want to pursue. Um, yeah, but most of the hard work of, um, of working with scholars, and it's the fun work too, that we all enjoy so much is done by the, the editors um, who work with me and they, um, they are subject area expertise as well. I've, I've been talking about politics because that's where I came up, but um, it's a very, our coverage is really wide ranging um, from arts and culture to economy, education, environment, energy. Um, we have a religion desk, which is really um, unique in American media, almost unique, not quite unique, but um, very unusual. Health, um, politics, science, technology, and we have a podcast that we do as well. Um, so each of those editors is really, you know, um, very talented and thoughtful and, you know, they're working hard hard every day independently to decide what it is that they want to cover, um, developing relationships with scholars and, you know, just working on copy, <laughs> check and fact checking links and, <laughs> um, and fixing, you know, working, um, working on developing the copy. That was kind of a rambling answer, long winded answer, but I hope that answered your question. It does. I would imagine there's no typical day, really. Um, yeah, I mean, there are certain themes to the day. I mean, you know, one of the things that we do, um, you know, it's um, one of the things that I'm in charge of is that morning meeting where people come together. So I do think a lot about brainstorming and how teams work together and, um, you know, making sure that we're making that uh, daily interaction with one another as productive as possible. Um, and then direct, you know, just making sure everybody is, you know, knows what's being expected and coordinating people. Um, one of the expectations we have of our editors is um, when they want to commission a piece that they'll get on the phone and explain our model to the scholar and, um, and talk through their research with them. And that's one of the most fun things that we get to do. Um, I think it, it's something that I particularly enjoy. I think I would probably enjoy coming across you at a, <laughs> at a cocktail party and I would be interested in hearing about your research. Um, it's, really, it's really interesting to talk to academics about what they're studying and think about how 
you know, what, um, what an average person would want to know about that and trying, trying to like, um, trying to frame up their research in a way, um, that, um, that will work for, for general audience. There are very few people who are studying something that's so obscure, narrow, that it doesn't have some, you know, you can't kind of pull an interesting story out of what they're doing. Um, and occasionally you come across a researcher who just is sitting on a, you know, like the most important thing for people to know about and just don't realize it even. Um, so that's really, that's really fun when you, when you discover someone like that. What do you like to read? Or do you have time? <laughs> um, I like to read all kinds of things, really. I like to read, I like to read memoirs and fiction. Um, I just read, uh, I like to read like fantasy novels and sci-fi. Um, I'm trying to think of what I've just finished reading. I just read um, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, which uh, I just, over my winter break, <laughs> I'm not exactly on the, like, you know, newly released um, books. I just read Lab Girl. I can't remember the author's name right now, which I've been quoting a lot. It's an interesting memoir of a researcher. Um and I particularly like the parts about trees and how they compete with one another. Um, very interested in um, in how plants <laughs> survive. <laughs> um, so that was a really fun read recently. I'm going to look up her name because I feel like I should know it. Um, so, yeah. Do you encourage the other editors to read? It seems like in academia itself, people often feel guilty for reading for pleasure or reading novels or reading um, things that don't directly contribute to their research. But I found, particularly when I was a grad student and when I was an adjunct, if I didn't read outside my field, I really sort of lost my focus on any sort of bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't I mean, I, I work with such like a great professionals, I don't really have to encourage them to read. I don't think so. Think but um, yeah, we're starting. It's long been my like desire to like, start a book group for the staff. I haven't had the time to get around to that. But um, we're going to start a book group for our donors. We have a donor um um, program sort of, you know, like that looks similar to public radio or like, you know, radio lab or something like that. And, um, we're going to start a book group this coming year for, for our donors to join sort of like, um, webinar style. And, um, looking forward to that. We'll probably have maybe four meetings over the course of the year and maybe four different editors, um, in conversation with the um, the um, author of, you know, an academic author of some sort of book. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, questions from the audience. We're still sort of framing up exactly how we're going to make this work. Um, 
and the hard part's going to be choosing the books, of course. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, that I, I think that'll be really fun. There is something I think um, special about the experience of reading a book in a group so that you can all discuss it at the same time. It's like an experience you kind of lose once you leave school, um, unless you like really work at um, recreating it. And um, yeah, a lot of people do do that work. Um, I was recently meeting with a, a friend of mine who's in her 90s. She lives in a retirement community and they have like one book that they all read and discuss at the same time. Um, so it should be fun to do that for the conversation community too. And you're located in Massachusetts. Are all of your editors and staff located there as well? Or is this morning meeting partly virtually and partly in person? How does this work? Yeah, we do it on Zoom. Um, we When we started, most of us were in Boston um, at the beginning of the pandemic even before that, we started to like spread out our hiring um, more. But then when the pandemic hit, a lot of people did sort of um, move out of the places that they have been living. So our staff is across the country now. We have um, we have three people in California and one in Oregon. Oops, my phone's ringing. Sorry. Um, um, uh, yeah, we have people across the country, really. So, um, you know, folks in, we have one person in Colorado, um, DC, um, uh, Boston, New York. So yeah, we're spreading out a bit. It seems like that might be an accidental asset. I think I, it, I, I don't know if it's accidental, but it's definitely an asset. Um, you know, the perspective that people bring from different parts of the country is very useful. Um, you know, different stories that are big in one part of, of the nation um, maybe aren't reaching our ears here in Boston. Um, and, you know, it just it, it gives you access to a broader um talent pool when you're hiring if you're not limiting it to one geographical um, um, place. So um, yeah, I think it's a definitely a good idea. How, how do you do community building then? You said how you handle the morning meeting is very important to you and you do a lot of brainstorming and strategic thinking. What sort of ways do you build community when the staff has a virtual community? Oh, within the, you mean within the staff itself? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we, well, we, it's difficult. <laughs> I know I'm going to be honest, like, especially now that we, you know, we're emphasizing work from home, um, it can be, you know, we we do sometimes struggle with people feeling isolated. Um, We try to, um, we try to be flexible, um, I guess, because what works for one employee doesn't work for someone else. Um, Some people really feel the need to be in offices with other, with coworkers. um, And we try to make that possible for people who want that. And then there are some people who, you know, who really prefer to work from home and we 
try to accommodate that as much as possible as well. Um, you know, I, I have regular one-on-ones with all the editors who report directly to me every, um, every other week. And then I bring them together as a group, um, on the alternative weeks so that we're connected and I'm hearing, um, what their experiences are. And then we have one meeting a year. We weren't able to do it during the pandemic, but we do have one meeting a year where, um, where we bring the whole team together and we were able to bring that um, practice back um, this year. And we had all 33 members of the staff come to Boston and play some candle pin bowling and eat pizza together. And (laughs) that was really good. There are some people who've been, I've been working with for some time that I had never met in person before that meeting. So um yeah, it's um. I, I think like all employers, we're trying to navigate the best of both worlds of the freedom of work from home and the sort of um, energy and creative um, ideas that come out of being together. Um, I think we're doing a pretty good job. <laughs> Do you ever go to academic conferences or book fairs? You're talking about idea generation and where knowledge is in different places. Are those places that you go or do you really rely mostly on online research to find scholars? Yeah. Um, so when there's not a pandemic, um, we encourage all the editors to try to go to two academic conferences a year. Obviously that fell off a lot um, when, you know, a lot of them were canceled or went online. Um, my business editor just came back from a long conference in person in New Orleans and came back with lots of ideas for um, stories to do. Um, so yeah, and I, you know, I when I was in a less like um, management role and more working on stories, I would go to the sociologists conference or the historians conference and. Um, meet people and just listen to ideas and and um, educate myself about what people are studying and what seemed interesting and just get to see another part of the country also <laughs> meet a lot of people. So yeah, so um, yeah, we, we go to conferences and we, we try to, we try to, we try to um, present at the conferences as well too, because that's a really great um venue for us to do a little talent scouting and raise awareness of the opportunity to write for the conversation. Um, it's, um, it really, like, it really is a good opportunity um, for academics, um, for the professional development reasons that we hit on earlier. Um, but it can really be a lot of exposure for them as well, because, um, one thing that's really unique about our model is the is um, our distribution network. So we have a relationship with the Associated Press. So all of our content moves on their wire, which means that a lot of AP clients like across the country will pick up our um, our content as a result. And often that's like little newsrooms. Um, 
you know, sometimes often in like the heart of the country, like where it may be difficult for an academic, even one who's very well established to reach those kinds of readers. Um, Typically, you know, like a very well-known um, academic might think about reaching out to um, the Washington Post or the New York Times um, with an op-ed, you know, if they want to get the word out about something. So um, that's quite unique. And then we have a team, a small team of two people who um, spend their day reaching out to our republishers every day and trying to make matches between the content that we're producing and the editorial mission of those outlets. Um, So they send them emails and say, um, dear Smithsonian Magazine, we just published this story that we think um, fits your editorial voice and your really your readers will really like and you know um tried to make connections that way um so that means that on average like every piece that we publish it goes on our website and goes out in our daily newsletter um but it's each academic is picked up about 20 additional times so it's almost like writing 20 pieces or placing them if you've ever tried to do some freelance writing um, with 20 publications um, all in one fell swoop. And about 50% of the scholars after that happens um, are approached by additional media like podcast producers or radio producers, uh, reporters who are doing related stories to, um, to ask them for quotes so it really, it's kind of like, um, for many of our scholars, it's a really big boost in the visibility of their research. Um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of academics are used to, you know, like dozens of people reading a journal article and our, um, you know, our stories can, um, you know, are, are typically read uh, tens of thousands of times and sometimes, you know, millions of times. So um, it's, it's a really like powerful engine for them to get their research out. So we, we like to go to those conferences and kind of make the case for people um, to get involved. I know we're running short on time, but I want to ask you about one other part of the conversation that uh, caught my eye recently, which is, I believe it's called Conversation Kids. Yeah, it's called Curious Kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Curious Kids is, um, you know, we have some special um, content types. And Curious Kids is, you know, it's essentially a column, um, meaning a regular feature that we produce that is kids' questions answered by um, experts. So they're actual kids' questions that get sent in... Um, that gets sent in to us by kids, and then we we scout out a um, a professor to to answer it, um, and and that goes through our usual distribution channels. And sometimes they're the most popular stories that we we produce. We've had a couple. Um, I I think I'm correct in saying you know break the million um, reads mark. One was about why barns are red. 
Um, and then we have one about what would happen if everyone sat in the ocean at the same time. Um, <laughs> um, and um, yeah, so those are really fun. What do you hope this episode sparks for listeners? Um, let's see. Um, I would hope that it would um, spark the curiosity to check out our website and read our content um, and uh, um, see if you like what's there. <clears throat> consider, you know, consider signing up for our newsletter if you if you like what you see. I'm the host of a Sunday newsletter that we send out. So we publish usually 10 to 12 stories a day. Um, so our daily newsletter goes out to about 160,000 people. And um, Frankly, that's a lot of content. Some people find that a bit overwhelming. Um, so I'm the host of a Sunday newsletter that's just the top five stories of the week by readership across the across the internet, and um, then five editors' picks. So it's just ten stories a week, which people find a little. Some people find a little bit um, easier to handle. Um, and then we have some specialty newsletters as well on like science headlines, politics headlines, and we have a religion newsletter that it's not, um, you know, it's about the importance of religious belief in politics and art and um, culture across the across the planet that we produce in collaboration with um, uh, the AP and an organization called um religion news service. So that's another thing that you can sign up for. Um, and if you're an academic, I would really hope that you would um, try pitching us a story through the portal on our website. Um, if you have something that you would like to share with the world. Emily Costello, thank you so much for being here today and telling us about the conversation U.S. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler. This is The Academic Life on New Books Network. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Please join us again.